Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have a conversation I've been desperate to have on the mics for quite a while now, to talk about the explosion of tribalism and anxiety we are seeing across the world, online, and over many, many issues. There is so much here, and I could easily monologue about this for a couple of hours by myself, but that would just be a rant. You deserve much more than that. You deserve a debate, true discourse, and a curious, friendly exploration into these issues with someone who thinks deeply on these matters of the mind. So that's what I teed up with the intelligent, empathetic, immediately relatable, and unique Dave Cottrell. You'll hear more about Dave in just a moment, but be rest assured he is uniquely positioned for this discussion. He's a British mental health and mindset coach who has suffered and thrived through the menacing mental health condition type 2 bipolar. He thinks so deeply about helping best understand this thing we call the human condition and how to best navigate modern life. So in this episode, we attempt to get stuck right into these hairy issues whilst also making it a practical conversation for you, the listener. We explore the experience of being bipolar, mental health issues at large, what things cause these issues to manifest, the raging tribalism in our lives today, the death of the friendly debate, social media, the explosion of COVID anxieties, and how to expand your comfort zone. Hopefully you'll find this episode therapeutic, relatable, comforting and practical as always you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode and if this discussion resonates with you please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot in instagram facebook or twitter Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out the Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey, which is an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, I hope you enjoy this timely and much-needed discussion with Dave Cottrell as we explore the raging tribalism, social anxieties, and mental health epidemic. How are you doing, Dave? I'm really good, Steve. How about yourself? I'm doing good as well, man. I'm doing good. I've been really excited to have this chat with you, man, because I can't help but get myself into a bit too much trouble online at the moment. Part of it is, is I don't know, I, I want it. <laughs> I, I want to be perhaps a little bit of a contrarian and kick things off and open people's eyes to some of the misinformation that we're going through at the moment. Uh, so it's yeah. definitely self-induced. <laughs> but yeah, I'm okay, man. I'm, uh, I'm getting through things. Good stuff. So what I was hoping we can discuss today, Dave, is that um, I think I'd like to lean in on your specialism in this chat and properly explore both anxiety as it relates to COVID, and this is June 30th, by the way, for the listeners, as well as social anxiety and online tribalism. Now, let me tell you why for the audience so we can just kind of frame this. I see that we are more divided and more anxious than ever before. 
I see lots of uh, lots of passion, care, and enthusiasm, enthusiasm, lots of energy in the world. But I also see a lot of naivety, vulnerability, aggression, and tribalism mixed in amongst that energy. And look, I know it's not just about COVID nineteen, albeit that absolutely has been you know the firecracker over the last few months. You know, we've had Brexit, we've had the UK general election, we've had the Trump administration race inequality, veganism, animal rights, environmental activism, you name it. There's been so much to get hit up about over the last few years. And everything just seems to be so fueled. But I'm also conscious that much of the energy and fighting would not have been possible if it weren't for social media. We just would have been blind to people's differences. We wouldn't have had the opportunity to be so exposed to people's point of view and to debate it out publicly and immediately. So I'm hoping we can talk about that, Dave, talk about social media, talk about how it's fueling some of maybe these anxieties and, you know, aggressions and tribalism, but also to acknowledge that, look, living long and well depends massively on strong social bonds, community and optimism. And I think social media could be a net positive to all of those things. But right here, right now, honestly, I'm not seeing it do that. So um, does that feel like a good frame for you, Dave, to kind of like dig into and explore? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Do you want me to just go for it? (laughs) (laughs) Before you do, before you do, and absolutely just keep keep that train of thought in your mind, let's just expose the audience to, to Dave Cottrell, let them understand where you've come from. Just give us your kind of um, bit of a plotted history of your backstory, as well as uh, your mental health situation. Okay, cool. Um, so, backstory: um, in school, in high school, I was uh, I was bullied originally for knowing the answers to questions and being smart. Um, a caveat there is that I was at the 14th worst school in the country, so it wasn't hard to be smart in that school. Uh, but I was bullied for putting my hand up and knowing the answers to questions. So, off the back of that, there were two things that I developed. The first one was a sense of humour. Um, I was in a school in Liverpool, so even though my accent's not very thick anymore, I did proper talk like that when I was growing up. You know, like and um, I could do this entire podcast in this voice if I needed to but I won't because like I imagine there's listeners from places other than the north um, and they will not <laughs> understand the word of it but so um so that, and at that school I was picked on for that and then the other thing I was picked on for there was I, um, I developed a an eating disorder as well so I developed a um, sense of humor and what I would do is I would deflect so I would I'd make jokes, but I'd often make jokes at like maybe the teacher's expense. So because the idea was I either got the attention of the bullies or the attention of the teachers. And it was always negative attention. If I got positive attention of the teachers, I got negative attention of the bullies. If I got positive attention of the bullies, I ended up with negative attention of the teachers. But I kind of got into the habit that I'd rather be placed on detention or suspended than I'd been than be beaten up. Um and I got equal parts of both, to be perfectly honest. But um, I developed a sense of humor, but I also developed an eating disorder off of it. Um, I'd go home and my way of dealing with all the fact that my life was out of control in the day was to control what I put in my mouth. Now, there's something I talk about in my work, which is called a boomerang. And a boomerang is something that takes you forward on it's going whipping back. For me, controlling what I ate was... I had control for about three seconds. I exercised my right of control for the first custard cream going in my cup of tea. And then the custard creams took control of me after that. So the boomerang came whipping back. And as a result, I ended up with non-purge bulimia. So I would binge and restrict and binge and restrict. And as a child, the binging was way in abundance of the restricting. 
And that kind of, and then I got diagnosed with um, type 2 bipolar disorder or manic depression, as it was called at the time um, when I was 14. So that would have been in 1996. And that was, uh, I kind of kept that pretty much to myself. There was very much the stigma around mental health back then. Didn't even tell my parents, got placed on antidepressants, um, which apparently were the wrong medication for me. And I should have been on antipsychotics, got the antipsychotics later on. And then that was it kind of until I moved out of Liverpool. And when I moved out of Liverpool, I moved up to a town 45 minutes down the road, had a Scouse accent and a shaved head. So everyone left me alone. So I didn't get bullied there. Um, made a few friends, you know, got my first girlfriend and everything seemed kind of all right. Um, but I still had the eating disorder um, and I still had these kind of these really dark thoughts a lot of the time. I really had the depression. I had the bipolar. So I had the kind of moments of mania as well. And that kind of carried on until my, my mid-20s and in my, by the time I got to my mid-20s I'd brushed it all under the carpet and I tried to kind of I tried to kind of push everything to one side I, I, it started off with food it became then it became alcohol for a little while it became religion there was always something trying to fill that hole um then off the tail end of that I screwed up my first marriage and the second and then and then basically well I was already kind of almost at rock bottom it turned to drug use and drug use was big throughout sort of my mid to late 20s and um, then I got in like a relationship with someone that was, well, we were both really bad for each other. Um, if she tells the story, she'll say I was the worst of and, of and I'll say it the other way around. But we were both really bad for each other. And what happened with her was she she isolated me from all of my friends and my family and I burnt a lot of bridges in order to be with her. And then she left. And um, I kind of felt like I had absolutely nothing. And this was 11 years ago. So I was um, 27 at the time. and. You know, social media tribalism, which wasn't really a thing back then. I put my 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 heart on my sleeve out on 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 Facebook. I looked at this picture of V Festival in in August um, two thousand and seven, and the picture was from or from the previous year. And there I am with like fifteen of my mates having a great time, and that picture came up on my timeline as like one year ago today. And I was like, I've got none of that anymore. And um, so I put a post up, a, a very sort of what people would class as an attention seeking post, I guess. For me, it's not attention seeking. It was connection seeking. But it was like I figured I, I didn't have anyone to turn to and I didn't know who to message directly. So I put a post up saying I need a hug. Now, social media in 2000, um, in 2009, well, sorry, in 2009, sorry, not 2007. I've suddenly gone back in time two years here. We are 2020 right now. Maybe yeah. I don't want to be in, two, maybe I don't want to be in 2020 because <laughs> it's a, it's a bit of a weird one. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> exactly. Take me back to 2018. Um, so in two, yeah, in 2009, I am, um, I actually, after that, I drove home from Liverpool that day thinking I'll have tons, you know, loads of people that have given me this hug and all the rest of it. And then I'll, I'll prove myself wrong. There are still people out there that care for me. And there was no, there was no response whatsoever. And that was when a person's already really re, in a really dark depression. And um, there's generally three lies that that person will believe. Number one is that they are the worst person in the world. Number two is that the world is a terrible place and no one likes them. And number three is it's always going to be like this. I believed all three of those things. So I actually made an attempt on my own life, which thankfully didn't go, you know, didn't go to plan. And um, I came out of hospital and walked well ran away from the hospital actually because my mum was my mum was there telling me how selfish it was to try and kill myself and I didn't want to hear that argument at the time and um ended up at like my best mate's house who had not been speaking to because of this girl and I just said to him you know look he could see I was in an absolute state and I was like you know I'm I've, I've you know I don't know what else to do I really need you I really need your help 
And in hindsight, that's what I should have said. You know, that's what, that's what I should have said instead of posting on, on Facebook. I should have picked one person and directly gone to that one person and said that. Um, but the big thing for me, I've got two kids and that time when, when this happened, they were, um, they were, they were four and two. And, um, there's a, people probably listening and thinking, well, if you've got, think you've got nothing and you've got two kids, it's like, how can you get to that point? Well, the reason is that when you're in that point, and I said, you believe those three lies about yourself being the worst person in the world, the world is an unfair place. No one likes you. It's always going to be like this. Um, when you believe those things, you believe that the world's better off without you. And I believed 100% that my kids would be better off without me. And I was one, that was one of the biggest things driving my depression was the fact that my kids deserved a better dad. And through the filter of that depression at that time, the only way to give them the better dad was for me to get out the way, step aside so that the better dad could emerge. And, um, after the suicide attempt, I was sat watching this French film called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And the guy in it, he's got locked in syndrome. It's a true story. And he's there on the beach with his kids. And um, he, he can only, he's like in a wheelchair with all the tubes and everything attached to him. And he can't, he can only watch. He can't, he can't actually interact with his kids at all. And he basically said this line, um, which was even a fragment, even a shadow, even a sliver of a dad is still a dad. And that, that line hit me kind of. Mm -hmm well everywhere like i still can't i still can hardly get through that line without bursting into tears and um it in that sort of brief moment i was like right i need to go and be that dad rather than stepping aside and letting the letting the space be there for that dad to emerge that dad needs to emerge from me and this was when i was this was when i was 27 and for the last 11 years, that's kind of been my big drive and my big passion has been has been to be the best dad I can possibly be for them kids. I've retrained. Um, I got my health in order physically. So I lost um, I lost an absolute ton of weight. I went from 23 stone six to 14 stone two Um got a little bit obsessed with exercise and nutrition along the way, <laughs> then settled back up at like 16 and a half stone where I'm quite happy. But um, and then um, retrained as a personal trainer that was another big piece of the puzzle because I've always been the type of person that was there for everyone else. That year when I was with that girl was very, was very not like me at all. I was not a selfish person, but I'd let that part of me go. When I retrained as a personal trainer, I focused on everyone else. I was focused on other people. That was another piece of my puzzle. And then the final piece of my puzzle really was with all this, living with bipolar and stuff. I've, um, I've been through a lot of therapy. I've been on the receiving end of a lot of CBT and mindfulness and therapy and, and NLP and all of that stuff. And as part of my nutrition degree, we were doing modules on mindset, which was um, which basically for me, it was it was like being back in high school only without the bullies. Finally, I could put my hand up and I knew the answers to questions again. And, you know, this time people actually admired that rather than kind of picked on me for it. And it was like I was made for that job. Like I was made for that the whole whole purpose of that module was to understand the why and and the how to get a person to to stick to a nutrition plan as opposed to the um as opposed to writing the nutrition plan. And I kind of started introducing that into my PT clients and into my nutrition clients. And then um basically I kind of did my first seminar four years ago and I walked out of that room knowing I don't want to do it, be a nutritionist or a PT anymore. I don't want to sit in an office with a nice, with a nice light source and a plant and write people diet plans. I want to be on stage. I want to be in front of people. I want to be helping them change their mindset, helping them overcome whatever it is that's holding them back, helping them change habits and all the rest of it. And that was four years ago and I've not looked back. 
Wow. So are you are you doing <laughs> PT work still or is it purely uh, mental health coaching? No, it's it's all well I call it, it's mindset and mental health coaching. So um so because it's not all it's thankfully it's not all 100% mental health all the time because that is it's it's quite draining. Yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, I um I left PT in on the 31st of December. So what actually wasn't planned around COVID, obviously, because it wasn't a thing back then, but I couldn't have timed it better, really, mm -hmm. because um I've still been able to do a lot of my work remotely. Not all of it, but I've been able to do a lot of it remotely, which is good because it's mostly conversations. I'm not in a gym with anybody anymore. And what does what does your a day-to-day service look like from you it it doesn't well in, in terms of like my day-to-day -day work it doesn't it doesn't really look like anything like for example today um today i got up at like ed recorded and started editing a video at like nine o'clock in the morning then from 9 30 till 11 i'm on i run a, I run a show called the mental health family hour um which is teaching phse style education on mental health to kids in school to parents and to teachers um it's a project i've been running for the last 14 weeks for free um then i went off and um socially distancedly saw one of my clients so we had a we had a good conversation about their health um come back done this now and then i've got two more after after this i've got two more that i'm going to be doing over video call this afternoon this evening so that's that's a kind of reasonably standard Tuesday. Um, um, but there are days when I'm just doing creative work, which is which is nice. Um, they used to be before COVID, um, which is going to be the new BC, isn't it? But before COVID, I would probably be traveling once or twice a week to go and speak somewhere, which is my absolute favorite part of my job. Um, I love talking, which is I love podcasts. I run my own podcast as well, which goes up every Wednesday. Um, so that'll be recorded at some point in the week. Um, and then the other thing that I do on a regular basis is I'm now, if the last few months I've been streaming on a platform called Twitch, not sure if you're familiar with it, but Twitch is a, a video gaming platform. Again, just to connect with different people and talk about how video games were one of the big forms of escapism for me when I was struggling with my my depression and anxiety when I was younger. Um, and I kind of grew out of them, so to speak. And then when I grew out of them, that was another thing that I kind of went back to and realized, actually, this was something that was really good for me. So there's a lot of people within the, the video gaming community that, you know, do struggle with depression and anxiety. So I thought, right, well, we're going to, I wanted to create an online platform there where people can come in and just, it's like more of a conversational thing so with the you know with the other stuff if you do a facebook live or an instagram live for example yes yeah, some people ask questions but really you're going on there with a purpose to talk about a specific thing with twitch it's like right well i'm going to be sat chilling here playing computer games for like two or three hours um come on in and have a chat and you can chat to me or you can chat to any of the guests i have on or anything like that and it's um it's beginning to grow now it's 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 like you know quite an exciting thing that sounds great and it sounds novel um and it sounds necessary um, especially given the circumstances we're in and the dependence on Zoom or other platforms to connect with people. Um, it sounds like it couldn't have been timed any better. Um, can we talk a little bit about bipolar? So I'm, I'm not overly familiar uh, with the condition. Maybe you can help answer two questions that are in my mind. One, what's it like to live with bipolar? And two, how do you diagnose it? Because my layman's view of what that is, is, you know, being being happy one moment, not being happy the next moment, perhaps. And that sounds like an awful lot like my life <laughs> and most yeah. people's lives. So tell me how it's different from the ebb and flow of emotions that most people feel. Yeah, okay. Um, 
So first of all, there's two different there's two different main categories. There's a lot of different classifications of bipolar. Like there's bipolar schizoaffective disorder, which is bipolar combined with um, auditory or visual hallucinations. There's but there's the two main ones that people have is um, is bipolar type one and bipolar type two. And bipolar type two, I consider myself lucky to have type two because type twos the less extreme of the two in terms of the intensity and the length of my depressive and manic periods so it would yes like you know the, the the way to describe it in relation to the ebb and flow of normal life is everything more intense so let whereas your you know your day-to-day may may sort of range between a three and an eight you know in terms of three being low and eight being high or a two and an eight or whatever yeah someone with bipolar it'll range from like minus 10 to plus 500 or something you know it's like it's um what we consider a normal range of emotions and a depression, you know, depression is generally being prolonged. Um, and the mania side of it, it's not just a person who's in a, in a good mood. The, you know, a lot of my friends used to ask when we were going out and this, this admittedly was when I was with a group of friends that, um, were drug users, but a lot of them would ask before, like on, on the train, on the way into town, like what, what on earth Dave on? And it'd be like, I hadn't had pre-game, pre-game drinks or anything like that. I hadn't, I hadn't had any drugs or anything. I was just, I was just excited to be out and excited to be around my friends. And, um, and the mania side of it is, you know, okay. I suppose the way I describe it is that at my top, I feel indestructible and at the, at the low, I feel worthless and I can feel not just happy and sad in a day, but I can feel indestructible and worthless in the same day. And that's bizarre. Um, through COVID, through before COVID, it was always a longer, a longer sort of roller coaster than that. I'd feel worthless for a few days or a few weeks. The longest I think I've ever felt worthless for was three months. That was pretty horrible. Yeah. Um, the longest I've ever felt up for is about a week and a half. So the ups don't tend to last as long as the as long as the lows. Um, but then and then so that happened like I basically and then growing up, it was different. Growing up, it was I got into the belief because it was explained to me by the doctors and what was available at the time that. I exist at one of these two places. And it's uh, this way you should be very careful what you tell somebody, because if you tell someone you're going to exist at one of the two of these extremes, they're going to believe that. And if they believe that, they'll stop to note, they'll stop noticing when they're anywhere in the middle. Like if you, you've, I imagine you've come across confirmation bias in your line of work. It's like we, we, can, we tend to see the evidence that confirms the belief that we have. So if your belief is that you're always up or you're always down, which is what my belief was as a teenager, um, then that's what you're going to see. And if you have a day where you're kind of just normal, you don't necessarily see that. You don't pay attention to it. Now, I learned when I was in my late 20s, one of the biggest things that was a positive for me was learning the phrase, this too shall pass. I can't believe I was like 29 by the time I learned it. But it was... um, this too shall pass was that became my mantra for a really long time because it meant the good will pass and so will the bad. And the thing is, um, you know, when you think about, let's say your, your background is in, is it in tra- personal training as well? It isn't. Or no, you, I'm actually a corporate oh, sales guy that uh, pivoted, pivoted into this space two, three years ago. Oh, okay. So if you think about like with, with lifting a weight, you know, like not lifting a weight, not just about the weight. It's about how long you have to lift it for. Mm-hmm. You lift up, you lift a weight slowly and you know, slow enough, a two kilo dumbbell can feel like a 20 kilo dumbbell. And it's like, so if you go slow enough with it and you've got to hold it for a long period of time. So if you believe that you're always like that, 
it's um, it becomes heavier. It becomes much, much harder to deal with. Now, whereas if you kind of then change that belief and flip it around to this too shall pass, it's like it takes the weight out of it a little bit. Doesn't stop it from hurting altogether, but it takes the weight out of it enough. And, you know, enough so that you can kind of cope. You're like, okay, I it goes from I can't deal with this and I have to forever to I can't deal with this, but if I wait it out, it will pass. It's a very different change, you know, frame of mind. And um, that was kind of the first move. And then the second move for me was once I actually learned all the stuff that I do with my clients is that my now my mantra now is there is always another way. So you don't it's yes. OK, there is always a kind of another option. There are things that you can do to actually to positively impact things. And um, I made a video about in fact, the video I made this morning, the one at 9 a.m. was about depression and how when we are depressed, we stop finding joy in the things that we do. So what we do is we, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Basically, if you find joy in the gym and then you hit a period of depression, you think, well, the gym's not working. Let's not bother doing the gym. That's like hitting a period of a bad time in your finances and then stopping paying into your savings account. You know, it's like it's not going to it, you may it, you may not be kind of it may not look like it's not helping you in the uh, straight away, but ultimately long term it's that you're you're getting rid of the thing that could be contributing towards you feeling better, and um, that's what I do now. And it's rather than when people say, "Oh, choose happiness," or you know, happiness is a choice, which I have totally and utterly been naive enough to say a few times in my life. Um, it's more like I can choose to invest in things that will make me happy. So, um, prime example. Um, I've had quite a number of ups and downs during the last 12 weeks and a few weeks back when it was really bad. I didn't want to get out of bed at all, but I got up and I went for a walk. And um, my wife was like, well, you don't seem like you want to be on this walk. I'm like, I don't want to be on the walk while I'm on it. But I would love later on to look back and go, I could have stayed in bed all day today, mm -hmm. but I went for a walk. So I was I was doing it not to cheer myself up in that moment, but because I know that retroactive, retrospectively later on that day, I'll look back and say, well, I've done a little bit more than I thought I could have done. Um, how do you get diagnosed? That'll, that'll be a much quicker answer. Uh, well, your doctor, basically, they have to, um, they they put you on a mood log for a couple of months. Um, so you basically track your mood and whether and, and kind of what it's doing over the space of a couple of months. And then they send you back, you go to a psychiatrist. And that's how it's been properly assessed as I've been an adult. Um, when I was a teenager, I was just, I got given like the most shotgun diagnosis ever. Um, I think they were a little bit more kind of, you know, fast and loose with the antidepressants back there, which is how, because antidepressants aren't supposed to be um, prescribed to a person with bipolar. Um, because it's actually not a form of depression, really. It's a form of psychosis. So you're supposed to be put on mood stabilizers or antipsychotics. And um, the antidepressants for me were one of the things that actually they think contributed towards um, the fact that I had a lot more suicidal ideation around that time. Right. So, um, and as a result, they didn't end up making me feel like any better. They just made me feel pretty numb. And um, so I've been on three or four different type things, four in the end, different types of medication in my life. And only one of them really worked for me. Are you still on meds now? I'm not on meds now. Um, I actually, weirdly enough, asked to go back on them um, during my last big spell, which was about three years ago. And um, I got the weirdest response from the doctor. He was like, 
he basically told me to go away and get more Facebook followers. I was like, what? <laughs> um, because what, well, what he said is based on my history. And I, th- I sort of kind of appreciate it to a degree now. But at the time, I didn't because um, I'd gone through back through the entire system in order to get to this guy. Um, I'd, ha- I'd had to do the, the mood diaries and everything for a couple of months again and then see the psychiatrist at the end of it. And I would say the mood diary that time was the worst one I've ever filled in in my life. And yet this guy was like, yeah, maybe you've not even got bipolar disorder. He said, and he's like, you run your own business, right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, how many followers have you got on Facebook? And I think at the time I had like 500 or whatever. And he was like, you know, go and get 700. And, um, and I mean, to be fair, I've got like 6,000 now and I do feel a little bit better, but I don't think they're related. Um, but but, um, but he, he said he said to me, he's like, I don't want to put you back on medication. He said, because if I put you on medication, you're going to be on it for at least 18 months. And, I sp- and in the past, I've, you know, I've got a history of, do, as I said, not doing so well on medication. So I ended up coming off it. So he didn't want to. Um, and he also didn't want to prescribe me with anything that's kind of more of an open in a case of emergency thing. Because um, so like like, for example, um, like like a diazepam or anything like that, which would be more this comes along because again i don't really want to be i think we've had this conversation with my doctor that i don't really want to be on medication all the time i only want it when things are bad so and um it's an interesting one for me because the, even the medication that did work which i think was i think was livium um yeah i think it was livium um was when that did work it stopped me from feeling kind of everything so and it, it, it destroyed my creativity and i think again that um it stopped me from feeling the lows but it also stopped me from feeling the highs and i kind of just meandered for a little while mm-hmm. and um there's an you know there's an expression at the time that i kind of came upon which was happiness is not just the absence of sadness and i was um i'd settled for a few years on the absence of sadness being enough and um it wasn't until i kind of I was brought off those meds that I started feeling a bit more vibrant and a little bit more creative myself again. Um, and I've kind of taken the the decision and my doctors sort of agree with the decision. Well, this def- this one definitely did um, that that rather be that version of me. Um, I'm safe enough to be that version of me. Like, and it's a very, that's a very clear distinction to make. And like, not everyone will have the same conditions. Not everyone will be as high functioning. And so there'll be people that are way more high functioning than I am with bipolar disorder. And there'll be people that are way less fun- high functioning than I am with bipolar disorder. Um, and it's, it's medications one I've never really spoken about. I've never spoken about on my own podcast, mainly because I don't want anyone to kind of listen to me and think that my way is their way. Um, I am not anti-medication and I'm not 100% pro-medication. The way I see it is just like a lot of other things in this world, they are tools and they are contributing factors. So for some people, having some medication to kind of get their head in the right space so that they can engage more with the talking therapies. That is an absolute necessity for some people. For other people, it's not the right way. Okay. Um, there's a lot you, you said there, and there's some bits that I'm eager to pick uh, to pick on to and just um, explore a little bit more. So it sounds like, first and foremost, you're very self-aware. Of course you are. It's your line of work. And I think that creates a level of safety, that you have this level of introspection, awareness, and um, professional skill set, I guess, to explore your your journey and your ups and downs. I think first and foremost, it probably helps that education. And I think everyone can receive that education, whether it be through you or, or other resources. The second thing I thought was, you were talking about identifying with your ups and downs. I could imagine just identifying with the condition could be enough 
to exacerbate the condition, right? You see that frequently yeah. across many conditions, right? As soon as you associate yourself with it, there's not only that kind of energy and that flow and that kind of, you, you manifest things in life that you believe to be true, right? But at the same time, when you're experiencing this and you you consider it to be a truism and inescapable, I guess that probably locks you in even more. But the question I had for you was more around, when I, when I look at people that struggle, um, whether it be with depression or, or dark thoughts, the questions I have for myself, and I'd love to kind of explore more with you is, is it a matter of dysfunctional thoughts? Is it a matter of genetics, i.e. receptors being out of whack or some polymorphism? Or is it chemical? Chemical not mm. just being drugs, food, right? Food and the wrong foods chronically can create conditions whereby your brain's perhaps less functional. And I hear so many stories online of people that have radically transformed a standard diet to something else. And in doing so, relieve themselves of depression and relieve themselves of the need for medication and therapy. So I guess I just wanted to explore that a little bit. Is it in your mind? Is it all three? Is it dysfunctional thoughts? Is it genetic? And is it chemical? Or do you think really for bipolar, it's it's one more than other? Um, I think I think definitely it's it's all of the above, um, and I think what we need to look at is that is is that there's multiple contributing factors to everything. So and we and because often people get stuck in the whole well, especially if you say it's genetic or there's a genetic component to it, and then people are well, you know, and we always suspected that my dad had something that went completely completely and utterly undiagnosed, and some of the ways he acted around certain situations, even though I wasn't brought up by him. Um, I react around the same situations okay. as, if I, as if I've learned that. So there's definitely a genetic element to it. But the thing, what what happens when you when you bring genetics into into the equation is people just suddenly shut off and go, well, that's genetics, and there's nothing I can do about Don't it. Take responsibility. Exactly. And there's a ton within the mental health industry, both even with professionals and people who suffer themselves. There is a lot of learned helplessness. There is a lot of this is the way it is, and this is and this is always the way it's going to be. Therefore. You know, therefore, what's the point of even bothering trying anything? I'm always going to be like this. The world should adapt to me. And you know what? I think the argument between whether or not um, anyone who sits on either 100% on either side of the argument of whether or not a mental health is something that can be changed or whether or not it's something that just happens to us, I think is, is you know, it's the same with any argument, really. All the ones you brought up earlier with like terms of things like Brexit or veganism or, or climate change, anyone who sits 100% to the, to the left or right on these arguments is generally kind of doing so at their own detriments and the detriments of the people they're trying to serve. So anyone who thinks that 100% um, mental health can be impacted by diet and by like, you know, by a bit of yoga and by running is probably, is probably hugely naive. Mm -hmm. And, and I say that from the point of view of being that person when I changed my diet and exercise. <laughs> and what happened is I got a 18 month period, which was the longest sustained period of feeling okay. And I didn't change any of those things after that, but my depression came back and it was just like, oh, I thought we were done with this. But during that 18 month period, I became a bit of a zealot, if I'm perfectly honest. And I was like, yes, you can totally do this. And anyone that's not doing this is just being lazy. And I, I, yes, I was one of those people. I was the, um, you know, the sanctimonious ex-smoker or whatever, you know, the, those type that. And um, 
Now, at the same time, when we go into the whole, the argument that it's 100% genetics, 100% chemical, and these chemicals have kind of, this is the situation that you're born with and therefore you're stuck with, then what will happen is anyone that tries to engage with that person with talking therapies or with medical interventions or with holistic interventions like training or exercise or, um, or nutrition or, you know, anything like that, that person will immediately write that thing off. And if we believe a thing's not going to work, it will not work. So again, it's both to, it's to our own detriment. What I would prefer people to think of it is that, that we're all somewhere on the spectrum between can I change this or can I not? And to some people, the same as I said before, there will be people of different levels of functioning within the same illness. Um, there will be, you know, there, there will, there's also people with different levels of ability to change. What I will say is that I, and I don't like to use generalizations, but I think a hundred percent of people are capable of relative change. So change relative to where they are. And whether, and now the question is whether or not that's enough. Now, I had the, the, the I had one percent is greater than zero thing, which is a, a Gary V kind of quote. But I had that on, on the background of my phone forever because, you know, the same as if I do if I'm suffering from a huge depression, I get out for that walk. That walk might be make me feel twenty percent better on a day when I'm feeling all right to begin with, but it might only make me feel one percent better on a day when I'm feeling absolutely miserable. And it's the question is, is that 1% worth something? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. I'd rather be the person that's trying than the person who's giving up. Now, I get with it. And the people are probably listening to this and going, yeah, but didn't you say you tried to kill yourself? It's like, yes, I did say that. But I've also, that was 11 years ago and I'm a completely different person from 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 when I was then. And, you know, there's the mate, I've actually got something in my phone written for if I ever kind of feel like I want to kill myself again, because I realized that there's a very different Dave you know, kind of turning up that day than the one that I'm, than the one that I am right now. And that's the whole thing is we have to believe in relative, you know, that change is actually possible. So yeah, if there is genetics, you know, you, you see it in kind of in bodybuilding or sport, people just go, well, I've not got the genetics for this. So why bother? It's like, well, is, is being the absolute top in the world of what you're after or you just really enjoy doing it? You know, I'm six foot two and I absolutely loved um, doing Olympic lifting. And the amount of people that said to me, oh, you've got too long levers for it. Your levers are too long. You'll never be competitive. It's like, I'm not trying to be competitive. I'm trying to be better than the me that I was when I first started it. I'm trying to kind of like, you know, sit a little bit deeper into each of those lifts or get, you know, get an extra two and a half kilos on those lifts or whatever it might be. And it's that whole thing is again, that those small percentages all add up over time. And, you know, we have to, we have to kind of, I think we have to kind of stay hopeful about that and kind of and know that some form of some form of improvement in some area not always not always the same improvement that the person down the road's got and um, because that again we become we can become quite bitter about that you know if one person like if someone hears my story some people might be completely motivated by it. other people might be like oh well i was depressed and I, I was suicidal around the same time as him and i still am now and my life's been you know I've, I've suffered for the last 11 years why did he why did it work this way for him and not for me and it's like you know we're all we're all completely different in terms of what will actually work for us and that's why I'm very sure I'm very sure well I don't really prescribe things in the way that I did as a PT it's like yeah okay this person wants a bigger chest so we'll do bench press and we'll do dumbbell flies and we'll do these type of things whereas with someone wants stress relief or someone wants mental improvements I am more than often will have that person write their own list because there's certain things that will work for them that they know intrinsically will work for them and there are certain things that they won't um 
And then there are certain things that they've never tried, but they assume that they won't. Yeah. You know, I, I love this conversation, Dave, because it's, whilst we're talking about quote unquote a condition, uh, it feels like everyone has many of these conditions, but at perhaps the low end of the spectrum. You know, I yeah. can look at, you know, my wife, I can look at me, I can look at my friends and I go, you know what, there are times when you come across a little bit depressive. There are times when you come across a little bit manic. You, there's times when you come across a little bit schizophrenic. There's times when you're very egotistical. What's going on there? Like there's there, And there's different personalities that show up. Now, I think that's part of being human, to be honest. And um, it's it's understanding the cutoff between are you just think, are you think differently or are you autistic, you know? Yeah. And um, there, there clearly is a spectrum and we've just decided to put, you know, whether it be a chemical line in the sand or some kind of um, cognitive questionnaire line in the sand as to whether you're diagnosed with or without a condition. Any thoughts yeah. on that? Well, I mean, I've never had I've never had my neurotransmitters checked. I don't know, even know how they do it, if they do it. Um, but there's supposed to be, with depression, there is supposed to be an imbalance between your serotonin and dopamine levels. Um, I can't remember which way around it is, but there's supposed to be, which if one's, too high compared to the other then you can be depressed and the other's too high compared to the the, the other one then you're more likely to be manic or schizophrenic or there's, there's you know I've, but then there was a whole bunch of studies that completely honestly disproved that and said it's absolutely nothing to do with chemicals and um i don't know, like i mean i don't know if you ever come across johan harry his book lost connections um if you look at the speed in which kind of dep antidepressants and things like that were kind of were distributed and without without the level of study that went into them in order to get them passed was very, very minimal. Um, now, I think kind of reflecting back on what you said in terms of, you know, is it like, you know, someone comes can come across as a little bit bipolar or I think the main distinction there for it to be classed medically is that it needs to be a prolonged period. So um, anyone with depression, clinical depression would need to have shown a prolonged period of clinical, a prolonged period of depression. The same with anxiety. Yes, I think I, I think 100% that we all have mental health. I think that there are um, there are kind of people have drug induced psychosis that comes like you know that that comes whilst on drugs and then they're okay when they're there are others there are other people that you know smoke weed a couple of times and have drug induced psychosis for the rest of their life. There are people that you know experience depression in a there you know you, when you get people let's say they they're bereaved they. They, quite often you'd, they'd experience an intense sadness that you would class as depression, but that's not considered medically to be a depression because it actually makes it makes sense as to where that that's what a person's response would be in those situations. Um, I think categorically we all have mental health. There's, I don't think there's any because, the, and I think that's indisputable for the simple reason that we all have physical health. We don't just class someone as having physical health when they have poor physical health. In fact, if anything, when we say the phrase physical health, we tend to think positive things. We tend to think that person's an athlete or that person's good with nutrition or that person's muscular or strong, whatever it may be, when you say physical health. Whereas if you say mental health, you tend to think of a condition straight away. You don't think of, you know, is this person got mental fortitude? Is this person strong? Is this person a good leader? It's like, for example, one of the reasons next year, um, on the 26th of February next year, I'm, I'm doing a 26.2 hour um, mental health conversation called the mental health called the mental health marathon. 
um, currently building up towards it. <laughs> um, but it's 26, it's going to be a 26.2 hour live event, um, which I'm going to be hopefully awake and lucid for the whole thing for the simple reason that people always do physical endurance events to raise money for things. So charity events, people tend to do physical endurance. And even when you're raising money for a mental health charity, people are always like, oh, isn't this great? This person's ran a marathon or isn't it great? This person's done the three peaks. And I'm like, right, okay, well, I want to kind of see whether or not I've got the mental endurance to do this. I'm going to interview people for like, you know, basically what you're doing with me right now. I'm going to do this for 26 straight hours, hopefully. Um, I can't wait to see what the last few, well, I won't personally see what the last few of them are like. I'll probably be having an out of body experience, by then. <laughs> but I can't wait to see the video of the last few hours. I'll be like, did I really say that? But, um, but this is the whole thing is we always focus on, we always focus on, you know, on physical health and stuff. And we always physical focus on the positives of physical health. Whereas when we talk about mental health, we hardly ever talk about the positives of it. We wouldn't talk about a person that, was you know we, when we talk about mental health you're not talking about a person who's just won 50 chess massive matches back to back oh yeah that's a person with some pretty good strong mental health and strong mental fortitude even people who do run marathons or ironmans and stuff you know the mental fortitude that's going into those things is is off the charts um so we do all have we do all have mental health and i think with enough strain and stress then anyone it's you know and some form of break can happen to anybody what I think changes that an awful lot is that there are many people out there that don't realize that they're proactively looking after their mental health. So just how you get those guys that are PTs that have, um, you know, they say, you're like, oh, what did you do to get in this shape? And they just go, oh, I was just always in, I was always in shape. You know, I was, I was in, I was in sports as a kid, played 40, got into the weights and that was it. And that's their entire story. And it's like, I think you have the same thing in mental health. People will be like, yeah, I was, um, you know what, I just, I journaled in high school and I, I always used to just phone my mum and tell her about everything that's going on in my life. And then I did the same thing with my best mate. And, you know, I had a, good, a group of lads that I played 40 with or a group of lads that I played like Call of Duty with. And we just always talked and, and that, you know, that was it. And that, that, like that person, um, you know, that person has been doing these things that we consider now to be self-care. And, um, it was only, I only came across this thought when I was listening to another guy who I know called, um, just man up social. Um, he runs a podcast in Ireland called just man up. He's trying to reclaim that phrase and make it all about manning up, equaling, opening up, which I think is awesome. And, um, he said that his dad was, um, he went off to uni and kind of lost like the group of mates that he was playing football with. But his dad stayed, you know, his dad had always just stayed and played with the, uh, the same group into his forties. And it was like, it was only going back to playing football when he was a little bit older that re- that helped him with his depression. And this is the guy himself, not his dad. And because he kind of had this realization that is that that was something that had been helping him when he was younger. And then he kind of moved away from it because life in the 21st century is a bit like that, isn't it? And, and then when he moved back to it, it's like, oh, yeah, this thing I'm doing, it's looking after my mental health. And it's like it's things like that. It's like I think we can um, I think we can all kind of think about that person who's like looked after their mental health almost without no, not ever planning to. The same as you get some people that looked after their physical health just because, you know, fell running or walking or playing football with the lads is is just something that's always been what they did. They never did it to get fit. They got fit because they, they stayed and, you know, fit because they did it. I, I totally agree. I've, I've read a book recently called um, Letting Go. Um, I don't know if you've read it. 
it's it's a bit woo in, in places, but it's really about understanding, uh, you know, the con- levels of consciousness from, you know, negative energies all the way up to the most kind of euphoric or, or positive energies. Um, and it talks a lot about self-work and self-actualization and that path towards that. And I think generally, I think all of us need to do self-work. I think we've all got demons. We've all got issues, uh, you know, and we've all got dark thoughts. We've all got um, moments of depressive-like behavior and you said something there that I thought was quite profound. You know, there's there are people that have very productive thoughts, as in they're productive individuals in society. They get a lot of stuff done. Um, they have a lot of discipline. Um, but that's different from having positive thoughts, right? Thoughts of happiness, gratefulness, optimism. Um, they're, they're two different things. And yet I think they're one of the same because they're, they're, they are, though, kind of higher level, more... Um, productive, more valuable energies where you can get stuff done. And then there's many, many kind of darker energies where it's even non-productive or it's it's sad. Um, and I know for me, that's a constant battle. That's a constant piece of work of identifying myself, understanding how to be stoic without losing the energy day to day and actually having gratitude for the day. You know, that, that balance is a knife edge for, I think, all of us. Um, but I, I think it's difficult to either want to seek out support to explore whether you may or may not need support and or self-work. I think we all do. Um, and or if you actually have something clinical. I, I personally think this is something that is going to explode over the next 10 years as we become more self-aware, not because there is an explosion of you know, external events causing us to be massively depressed or anxious. I think it's more we're becoming more self-aware that we need to do more self-work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But going back to what you just said about like the more productive and the positivity going hand in hand, I'd um, I'd sort of expand on that and say, well, I think it comes down to how you feel about what you've done because you can find productive people who are happy, and you can find productive people that are miserable. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, I I work with the I work a lot of my work is actually around the belief of not being good enough. Now, not being good enough can create a procrastinator or a perfectionist because it can lead to a person thinking, "I'm not good enough, therefore why bother?" Which is your which is your procrastinator, or it can lead to a person that says, "Nothing I ever do this is good enough, therefore I've got to keep on working to try and be good enough one day." which is your perfectionist. But ultimately, they both beat themselves up at the end of the day. Now, one person could be achieving absolutely nothing and the other person could be achieving absolutely everything. Now, a perfectionist, I love asking the following two questions to perfectionists. It's like, right, if you had 99 things on your to-do, sorry, 100 things on your to-do list and you got 99 of them done, would you be happy about the 99 you've got done or would you obsess over the one that you've not got done? And every perfectionist will say, I'll obsess over the one thing I've not got done. Now, if you then turn around to that person and say, the fun one I love to follow up on this about 50 50 on this, but is if you actually had a hundred things on that to do list and you got all a hundred of them done, would you be like, yes, I finally nailed it. Or would you be like, I could probably do 101. <laughs> and it's about 50 50 on that one. But every perfectionist says yes to the first one about the first one. And my wife's one of those perfectionists. She's like, she's the type of person that on the whole, I think we both get roughly the same amount done. She'd argue that she gets way more done than I do. Um, but on the whole, I'd say we do get about the same amount done. But like, even though I'm the one with the, you know, quote unquote mental health condition and she hasn't got, she's not got a diagnosis of anything. I'm generally the one that when the head, when, when my head hits the pillow, unless I'm in a period of depression, I'm happy with me and what I've got done. And that's all come down from actually realizing that for the, the predominantly my life before that, I was trying to live up to like these ex 
external expectations of what it takes to be good enough. And those were like things that my mom or my dad or my brother or my teachers had implied, but never explicitly said. So I'd, in, I'd inferred whatever I wanted in terms of in order to be good enough, you have to be loved by everyone or you have to be popular or you have to be, you know, the things that probably I was bullied by for, for me was probably the ones, you know, I have to be kind of funny in order to do this and you can't upset anybody and all of that stuff now. Though, so it, like if I went to bed and I hadn't done a hundred percent of all of that, then I was feeling I went to bed not feeling good enough. Then then I did a lot of self work and realized that you know what the only person whose approval you need is your own. And I sat down and I'm like, right, what approval? Do, what what does it take to be good enough in my eyes? And the question I often get people to um to ask themselves in this question if they if they struggle to say what does it take for them to be good enough because there's um is there, i don't know if you've ever come across the 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 um the, the idea of the looking glass self i can't remember who wrote it but it was about 18 the late late 1800s i think and it's like i am not who i think i am and i am not who you think i am i am who i think you think i am <laughs> so so basically whatever i think you think about me in this interview that is that is yeah. you know myself right now and the same is true like if you then go out to all of your viewers it's like however however they all think i am that's the culmination of all of that is who I really am and it's actually until you sit back and say you know what right who you know who am I and what, and what do I actually want to be am I trying to please other people but I get people to ask themselves right your loved ones you know if you've got kids or if you've got a wife what does it take for them to be good enough in your eyes you know what does it take for your wife to be good enough for you are you asking me directly yes okay yeah sorry I wasn't I wasn't prepared to answer that okay <laughs> um so I would say I've I've struggled with that because I've gone from having a high-charging, hugely successful sales career, uh, being one of the best, probably, you know, within in the industry globally, to jacking it all in and doing what I'm doing now, which was starting from the ground zero. And through that journey of a couple of years, I have had many dark moments when I'm just not anywhere near as productive, capable, and effective in my eyes as to what I was before. So it's an ever-changing answer to that question. But right here, right now, I'd say the answer is really about, I guess, being present, being grateful, and being a good dad, combined with, from a work front, feeling that I've made a difference in that day. Now, I've been out, basically sounds like if I've lowered the bar massively. <laughs> and I think I have, but I've done it knowingly because I'm happier for lowering the bar. Not in terms yeah. of what I want to achieve net-net, but in terms of finding a way to navigate each day and leaving each day mostly satisfied with who I am. Yeah. But on the, so that was what you think it takes for you to be good enough. What does it take for your wife to be good enough in your eyes? What would she say or what? Do, no, what, 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 does, what does it take for her to be good enough to you? Right. Okay. Um, she's probably going to hate any answer I give. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say work, I would say one, continuing to be a great mother that she just seems to do effortlessly Two, being there for me in, in a selfish way and being present for me and in three working on her own vulnerabilities that she's yeah. constantly working through herself and making progress now I get, i'm going to go out on a limb here and say that she already does all three of those things the third a lot less than she should <laughs> yeah fair enough okay because the, the most common answer when i ask say to say especially if um, usually why partners is a messy one but kids usually it's like what does it take for your kids to be good enough the answer that pretty much mostly comes back is they just are now every single kid has grown up thinking 
that what it takes for me to be good enough in dad's eyes is this. And all the while, dad has been thinking, you're just perfect the way you are. Mm-hmm. You're wonderful. The same with like what it takes. And they'll think that what it takes to be in good in mum's eyes is just this. And we infer that from like, you know, my kids might think it's about tidying their rooms or whatever. My kids might think it's about... Um, you know, filling the dishwasher correctly because that's the thing that they do. That's the thing that they get wrong the most. So therefore, that's the thing that they get told, reminded yeah. to do right the most. Yeah. But they might, so they might think that it takes that. You know, I probably thought at the, growing up because my mum, a lot of the arguments about my mum, we didn't have a lot. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. But when she she got she got quite wealthy when I was in my late teens, and as a result, spent a lot of money on the house. And I'd do things like lie on the floor with the couch cushions, like making myself a little bed or whatever. And she'd she'd come in and scream at me for that. So I always thought, well, it was looking after her stuff meant was what what it meant to be good enough in my mum's eyes wrong she loved me to bits and always did and always thought I was good enough and yet we think like so we take those things in you know for my dad he always treated my brother like he was a like you know like he was the best thing since sliced bread and treated me like I didn't even exist so I'm like well being like Lee is is exactly what it takes to be good enough in my dad's eyes and I was never going to do that so it was like so you have all these ideas and it's like well what does that mean I could imagine if you asked my wife that same question she would say different things to me uh, because yeah. because she has a she has a gap between how good she is in real in real terms and what she thinks she should be uh, and i think we all do right but um you know that gap needs work because she's perfect as she is but as you've rightly said you don't often see that listen man um we're we're almost an hour in in what has been a fascinating discussion meandering around things i'm so glad we spoke about but you, yeah, we've not spoken about the best that we were going to talk about up front. So we should do that. We should do that. So yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, let's talk a bit about the shrinking middle ground. And I think you're such a great person to talk about that because, um, well, you've, you've described extremes in your own personality. Now, I, I found that statement fascinating when you said it. Uh, I heard you you first speak about this to Ben Kumba only recently, actually. And I thought, I really want to really want to dig into that. So what do you mean by the shrinking middle ground? Um, and I think let's, I, I guess, refer to social media. Okay. So with basically any argument, we tend to hear from the people that are polarized. Now, the place I first came across the shrinking middle ground was when I was still a PT and I was thinking about how do we motivate the unmotivated? Because as a PT, you're told, you know, basically, uh, go and go and work with the people that are already ready to change or the people who are already kind of like wanting to be in the gym and all the rest of it. And I'm like, well, I don't want to work with those people. I want to work with the people that really struggle with the health and aren't don't even know that they want to be in the gym or they want to be looking at the nutrition yeah i want to i want to help those people the ones that most pt's business models don't even cater for because they're just not enough of a demographic and you'll spend too long onboarding them so uh, i remember actually i was in poland for my wedding anniversary about three or four years ago when this happened and i was like how do you motivate the unmotivated because if you look up hashtag motivation you will find things that only motivate people who are already motivated you won't find something that'll be like hey i know you're struggling right now and everything's really tough and you may have even struggled just to even get this far reading this post but just let me know just to know you you're amazing and you can do this and i'm proud of you even if you just brush your teeth today you know it's like that's not the type of posts that you see and if you look up hashtag motivation you're seeing let's go kill monday or go hard or go home and someone who's in the middle will you know someone who's sitting in that middle ground will go oh well i'm not quite ready to go hard so i guess i'll just go home you know i'm not ready to crush monday so um i guess that that 
that's, you know, I'll go over here. And what happens is the people who are already motivated, like the rich getting richer, the people who are already motivated just get more and more motivated. And then they start, and then they, you know, they form that little tribe on that side that says that everyone else is just lazy. I mean, the one expression I was, I was thinking about this when running this morning was the expression, I, I really want to make a video about this. You know, the, um, the, the, the saying, um, obsession is just a word that the lazy use to describe the dedicated. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that phrase is a way, is a late, is an expression that the obsessed use to cover up the fact that they're obsessed. So it's like, and you end up with this thing where you get this back and forth where each side is trying to win. They're trying, they're trying to kind of like, they're trying to bring as many people over to their side. But what they end up doing is they only end up preaching to the converted. You end up with like, so you end up with the shrinking middle ground. You know, you mentioned veganism before. I, I've had a lot of conversations with vegans about, and all we talk, what I talk about with them, because I'm not, I'm not interested in being converted to veganism. Um, I love meat, and there we are. I've just turned off half the audience. But um, you but haven't. I, I love meat too, so they've turned <laughs> off a long time ago. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm not interested in it. But what I am interested in, I'm fascinated by, is the way in which these arguments are put across. Like running up to someone who loves meat and saying meat is murder and all the rest of it. It's like okay, that might fire up a bunch of a bunch of other vegans, but it's only going to annoy the person that you're speaking to. Are you trying to? annoy you trying to educate so i may have i one, one of my friends actually told me recently he just he's just converted to veganism if it's something you convert to and he said that i was one of the reasons that he did and i'm like what are you on about like i mean I, he's like he said well you know i was ex- annoying i was explaining to him this exact principle that i'm talking about now to you is the fact that how vegans tend to put veganism across it's very rarely from an educational point of view and that's not true because i know there are people out there that do it but again the people who are the most vocal are tend to be the people who are at the extremes so when veganism became popular suddenly the carnivore diet starts getting a bit of attention the pendulum swings the other way then everyone in the middle is like oh are we supposed to be 100 percent plant-based or zero percent plant-based it's like no we're supposed to be the omnivorous things probably that we are mm-hmm. and again somewhere on that spectrum and that might be 100 percent plant-based for some people it might also be 100 percent, you know animal protein based for other people and it's probably more than likely anywhere in the middle for everyone else but because these arguments rage on they polarize people and you end up like no one's talking about the middle no one's talking about the middle in terms of motivation or the, the middle in terms of this or so it just reminded me of the whole concept of the shrinking middle class and um, in in mental health, I see the exact same thing in mental health, which is why I'll, why I've got so much love for my friend Alan and his Just Man Up podcast is the fact that those that phrase is so maligned with like with old school kind of like you know sort of middle aged white men at the top of corporations that just like keep a stiff over lip, man up and get on with it and all the rest of it, and that's seen as the way that the mental health is. It's either just man up or it's okay not to be okay, and it's okay not to be okay is a fantastic statement but it's a it's a kind of it's somewhere you go via it's not a destination that you want to be you want you don't want to be staying at i needed it's okay not to be okay for like six months you know i think i said it was 18 months was one point um but i needed that that as a destination there but i probably stayed at that destination far too long because we do crave we do crave progress and we crave growth that's one thing that does seem to unite us and um literally it's just been for me the last few last two or three years well probably since the original brexit vote all I saw was, um, I remember writing a post like that the day before saying, look, whatever you vote tomorrow, whether you choose to vote leave or whether you choose to vote remain or whether for your own reasons you choose not to vote at all, 
I still love you and I understand that you've got your you've got your reasons for doing it. And everyone does have their reasons for doing it. But as soon as someone votes the opposite way to what you do, we have this idea that that means they are. Well, if so, if you let's say you voted whichever way you voted, if you voted, um, if you voted leave, um, then you think that the opposition is a bunch of Europe um sheep or whatever whereas if you vote if i, I don't know which way they they, they see it because i voted remain um, but if you voted remain um then you think that the person that opt- voted leave is just like is, is you know is a racist or whatever um so that was and those were the things that were thrown around and instead of inviting everyone to the conversation and saying let's actually sit down and talk about what what our reasons were and let's be reasonable about it. It's like, if you vote for this person, you are this, you know, the same as like in the general election, it's like, if you voted for, if you voted for Labour because of some of the anti-Semitic stuff that Corbyn had done in the past, it's like, you are that. If you voted for Tory, you hate the NHS. You know, do, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's totally. like, it's... And, and we, we get labeled as if you vote in on single issues. And the thing is, if anyone tells me that there's that any whatever party they support, if anyone tells me that there's not one issue that they disagree with in their party, I'd be very surprised. If you agree with 100% of what your party's saying, then I'd be very, very surprised. Um, well, let, let, let me give you an example here. Um, sorry to cut you off, man. Um, it's I, fine. I was just thinking, I recently had a friend of mine that um, is in the middle when it comes to nutrition. He's, he's not a vegan. He's not a carnivore. He's a normal person, normally, but he is convinced he must be moving to more of a plant-based diet for all the reasons that you know the vegan movement described, right? Whether it be nutrition, whether it be uh, animal rights, whether it be the environment, sustainability. So yeah. we constantly go back and forth because I fundamentally uh, have issue with the science or the logic that supports those arguments. And I, I want to challenge that because I, I believe those things need to be challenged. Not that you should be carnivore, that you should see through some of the misinformation. But he constantly pushes back. And the last pushback I had from him was, look at Tony Robbins. He's he's amazing. You love him. He's pretty much vegan. So you must be wrong. He must be right. Like, surely, like, everyone believes him. I said, look, man, like, I, I do love the guy. I think he's incredible. I think he's done amazing things for humanity and continues to. But he also believes in God. I don't. That has never got in the way of me not taking loads of goodness from the guy. And at one point in time, I thought the alkaline diet he was pushing made perfect sense. And I tried it. It was rubbish. I felt like crap. But I I persisted because it must have been right. Since then, I've allowed myself to be educated. I've allowed myself to understand the science and the the chemistry and the, you know, the evolutionary background of humans. And I've gone, that doesn't make sense. I don't dislike him because of that. I'm able to take from him what I like without feeling a level of angst, frustration or hate towards him because we see things differently. And I think you're so right. There doesn't seem to be that blend anymore of saying, hey, you're a Labour supporter. I'm a Conservative supporter. I don't hate the NHS. Far from it. Let's have a conversation. But instead, it's like, no, you're a conservative, beep, I don't want to talk to you. And <laughs> yeah, it's like, exactly. damn. And like the veganism thing is so, it's binary, isn't it? As you've rightly said, it's these discussions have become binary. Just like Brexit, which kind of was binary, right? It's either we're, we're staying yeah. or we're going, but everything else has now become binary. And it's it's hard work. Well, the biggest one now is is the whether or not we should be leaving the house, and um, lockdown, been, anti-lockdown, yeah, 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 and it's again not many people seem to be in the middle. They 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 are, but.
but you don't really hear from those people. And that's the, that's what causes me to believe that. I mean, I have to sit back and say, well, the, the shrinking middle class, does it exist or not? Um, and it's because, you know, ultimately the person in the middle is not really saying much. Um, the person who says, right, let's just adapt common sense and all the rest of it. First of all, common sense doesn't exist. Um, I just, I think it's quite interesting. It's like it's common. I've got, I've, I've been wanting to make a podcast episode forever called common sense isn't, but I feel, I realize it'd just be a parody episode because it's like, you know, even before lockdown, there are people that think it's common sense to stop and have a conversation in the doorway of Tesco. And you can't do that right now, but that was happening before. There are people that think that stopping while you're reversing your car out and checking their phone behind you whilst your car's already moving out of space, that's common sense. And, you know, there are obviously now, right now, there are people who think it's common sense to just leave crap all over Bournemouth Beach. It's like, um, and that, you know, it's, that's the whole thing is we've, we've never had common sense as a nation. And right now we're expected to have common sense during the most uncommon circumstances. But still it's like, what the thing is, not many people, if people, if I saw a post about it today, um, about someone who lives in Leicester and Leicester's just been given local lockdown. And um, in the first place today, I think in England to get given a local lockdown order. And, um, and that person was like, look, I don't care if I'm being, I don't care if I'm, I'm being overly cautious. I'd rather be overly cautious than be one of those selfish TWA, you know, basically. And it's like, okay, how about that? So that person's immediately labeled everyone who's not being cautious yeah. as selfish TWATs. And it's like, it's like, like, again, that's right there. It's like, you know, someone who has a different opinion than you isn't necessarily being selfish. You know, it's like, and the thing is, I remember, you know, people would be like, okay, if you go down, if you, everyone goes down to the beach, they're all being selfish. Now here's, here's, here's a question. First of all, I've not been down to the beach, so, but I'm just playing devil's advocate on this one. I don't want to go down the beach because it's too busy. <laughs> I don't like being around too many people, but if someone goes down to the beach and the beach is empty, they're not being selfish. They're socially distanced, right? If another person then appears at the beach, they're not being selfish because they're still socially distanced. And there becomes a point at which like one person makes it too much, right? Because yeah. if you like, so there becomes a point where like between the, that, that one person walking on the beach and Bournemouth, you know, well, it was like last weekend between those two extremes, there is a point at which it becomes that, that then that becomes selfish. It's like, so which one's been selfish? Because up until that point, none of those people were selfish because there was enough space for each one of them. But it's not like they all sat on a notice board beforehand and said, right, we're doing a timeshare on the beach today. <laughs> let's um, let's see how many of us can go down there. We're all just being human. You know, like I live on a canal. Well, not literally on a canal, but I live like next to a canal. Um and we we've walked our dog down that canal for every day. Well, every, every dry day we walk, we walk them on the on the road when it's wet. But every dry day we've walked down the canal for the last eight years, and we've seen very few people on that canal. And then obviously once lockdown happened and we had to we had to kind of um, suddenly you know we were allowed one exercise a day and all the rest of it. That I, I call it the um, all you can eat bacon buffet because it's like there's so many people down there you'd think that there was an all you can eat bacon buffet on down there. And it's like we see more and more people just doing that. Now the thing is my first reaction was to say, oh, these people are being so selfish. Where were they before and all the rest of it? And it's just like, well, actually, they were probably in work while I was doing this because my schedule allows me for me to walk the dog during the day most of the time. So they were probably in work. But the thing is, they're only like it only feels selfish when there's, you know, 10 groups of them down there. If I bought, if I walked past one person, that person's not being selfish. And again, because they're not 
organizing all this beforehand if they were saying yeah let's all go down there on mass and meet up together that's a bit that's a bit of a different story but no one person's actually being selfish in fact we would often we thought oh well it'll be good us going down the canal rather than us going through the local village because we're less likely to bump into people and it just wasn't the truth you know it just wasn't the case so we're all learning and we're all adapting to kind of the most uncertain of situations right now and i think expecting everyone to have the right answer which means agreeing with you by the way that's what we when we want people to have this right answer when we say common sense we mean the sense we've got it's like i I like to say like we're all crazy we just every single one of us is crazy Right, but the only people we consider sane are the ones that are the same brand as crazy that we are. <laughs> so true, man. So true. And just to, to kind of um, jump off of what you just said, um, I don't know if you saw when IKEA opened up a month or so or whatever it was ago, and I think they had socially distanced queues, and then obviously socially distanced um, process of you know buying your shopping into inside. And I remember a friend of mine had posted a meme. On the top half of the meme was this really long queue that was done in an angle that looked like as if they were right next to each other, but we know they weren't, right? They were socially distanced as they were queuing. Yep. And underneath there was a picture of a coffin, like a, a prefab coffin and in the kind of Swedish kind of written style of something you would buy at IKEA. And I just thought that was so, one, hurtful, two, disrespectful, and three, it was it was assuming, as you've said, they've all decided to turn up en masse Three, and secondly, they're doing things inappropriately. Hey, if they're socially distancing, so what? And then most importantly, you don't actually know if your worldview is correct. And that, I think, mm-hmm. is the biggest problem I have of all of this extremist behavior right now is people are framing their view of whether you're a good or a bad person on a worldview that didn't exist in February. It's changed. It's come out of nowhere. And now yeah. it's this new worldview. And by the way, have you, the layperson, gone about understanding how true that worldview is because if it's wrong we've built the you've built the fabric of all your decisions and all your anxieties and all your shaming blaming and anger towards people on nothing and as you can probably tell i've got a sentiment towards calling a bit of bullshit on this if i'm honest um but it's not to suggest i want to be emotional about it i just want there to be a discussion of truth and there to be a willingness to accept alternative medium because right now everyone is receiving the same information and it's all built to build this anxiety, which hopefully is the, you know, this um, good jumping off point to getting into that. But anything you wanted to kind of key off any of the things I just said there? Um, yeah, just what you've just said then about about everyone just assuming that their worldview is, di- is, is the thing. It's funny how we have a, like... I like to think that we need to start being able to disagree with each other without disrespecting each other. We used to be able to do that. Like you heard me on Ben's podcast, like like first, obviously, and that was um, me and Ben don't agree on everything, but I still think he's an awesome dude. And it's like I don't, I think he's wrong on a few things, and he thinks I'm wrong on a few things. And we've had, you know, we that's one of the things we became friends over. Really, was the fact that we were able to have those discussions and and disagree with each other. other. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the thing. I don't expect everyone to understand me to the same I don't expect everyone to accept now the thing is when you disagree with someone you think they're the problem because they're disagreeing with you they think you're the problem because you're disagreeing with them but it takes two to disagree so you're both the problem the problem is we all assume that we know what objective truth is and we don't like we genuinely don't like what we've been given in every department it's like and this is not me getting all conspiracy or oil or anything but like when you know basically 
most political stuff is the idea of the news there is to discredit the other party. It's not to tell you about how awesome your party is. It's to defame the other side. And it's like, so, you know... Self-preservation, right? That's exactly what we're seeing right now, self-preservation. well, it's like this friend that I said about um, that he'd um, he converted to veganism because of me. He, he was like, yeah, well, I just don't think any animal should die for, for me to have food. And I'm like, OK, but you do realize that in order to like have plants, um, plant based food, there's, there's things have got to die. You know, there is there's like gophers and those type of those type of creatures that are like they're killed on the hundreds when you rip up a field and all the rest of it. And he's like, well, yeah, but that's accidental and all the rest of it. And I'm like, so let me get this straight. If you if you need to demolish a building. And you don't go and check that there's anybody in there and you just knock that building down and there are deaths are accidental. Is that cool? It's like, you know, is is it cool that when, you know, we, it's not cool when someone like, you know, sends a missile in to kind of kill a terrorist and there's happens to be other people in the building. Those things aren't cool. And it's like there's no there is. Unfortunately, it's like. I'm going to go as far as to say that anyone that's not a vegan doesn't have all the information and doesn't have all the right data. And anyone who is a vegan also doesn't have all the information. And But we have confirmation bias. We look for the information that, that, that supports our belief. And ultimately, we like to think it's a data-driven decision, and it's not. It's an emotional decision at the end of the day. So whether you choose to follow one candidate or not, whether you choose to eat animals or not, whether you choose to go out of the house or not, all of, and whether, you know, all of these things are emotional decisions. They're not actually based on the data. They're based on the what you've taken the data that's important to you to back up your emotions. And, and I guess the way this has been um, weaponized against us and that's a very strong word, but I think it's true, is that I could say, hey, Dave, if you're going to be vegan, for whatever reasons that you have, that's okay. You go ahead and do that. That's not a problem. One, I don't judge you. And two, your life doesn't affect mine. So go ahead and make whatever choices you want. But I would say equally, don't try and convince me. You can have a discussion with me, but don't feel angry if I don't agree with you, right? So that would be like, my position I could take with someone who has that, uh, that that kind of want to go veganism, but vegan. But this lockdown thing is different because it's not it's not just about you making a personal decision. It's been loaded up. It's been weaponized with. It's not just about your free will, your agency. It's your agency could cause problems. So now there's this interconnected web where you don't have freedom of choice because if you did you're being callous, you'll be barbarian, you're not caring for others. And I think this is where it's just getting really twisted because if an individual wants to stay at home for the next three months and go about shielding, I'm not going to judge them for that. I'd like them yep. to I'd like them to find a way to maybe explore the outdoor world and, and have a social life because I think they could do that whilst being healthy. But if they wanted to do that, that's okay with me. What's not okay with me is now that, you're, that there's a, a shaming, blaming and a kind of hate kind of culture spilling through social media saying everyone who's not doing what I'm doing is wrong based on this narrative that we have to all do it together. Yeah, 100%. Now, I personally think that anyone who's doing anything outside of the guidelines, there's a question for it there. But that's, again, that's like, so I'm not into people who are having huge mass gatherings or anything like that. But I do support anyone that's having, that's doing whatever they can within the guidelines because, as, uh, because again, those are, you know, what this is the funny thing is that the same people that were telling us at the beginning of all this, you've got to trust and listen to the government, were six months before that saying the government's a bunch of... Yeah, the government are a bunch of scum. We can't we can't believe them. We can't trust them. 
Then they say what you want to hear, which is shield or which is which is socially distance. Um, and then it's suddenly they're the heroes again. And then when they change the tune and say, actually, we don't need to socially distance and it, it goes, the, the, the pendulum swings again. It's like, right, we can't trust the government again. Oh, no. It's like, I'm sorry, like, no, I've personally thought I've, and I don't think we can trust the government personally. Um, and it's about, so it's really coming down to you making the best decision you can based on the information that you have available to you. And I don't think we should be doing things like, again, I should, I believe we should be somewhere in the middle of all of this. I believe that we should, and I hate the word should, but I believe that, you know, the real answer is, yeah, we should probably take more precaution than a lot more precaution than the people who are out on the beach, like huddling together and having 27 people barbecue should. But I also believe that, and will this will probably link nicely into the anxiety side of things. I believe that the people that stay at home for like longer than necessary run the risk of never wanting to leave the house again. Yes, that is a great segue. Before we get there, one last question. Do you, th- uh, one last question on this piece. Do you think this level of tribalism, extremist positions, black versus white, this kind of lack of middle ground, do you think it would exist in the same guise if it wasn't for social media? And the, let, let me frame that up. Like for me, my perspective is in the, if in, in the vacuum of social media, there still absolutely would have been difference of opinion. But we'd one have to do it face-to-face or through other kind of digital channels, not not through this kind of instant kind of communication that's made public. But I doubt, I very much doubt, there would be the ability for these factions, these fiefdoms to develop at the pace globally as they are. I feel that this is just lighting a blue-touch paper for us to express our innate tribalism our innate desire to be part of a small group that look after each other, that identify one another, that have kind of brotherhood with one another. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think social media has absolutely created the platform for that. Um, I actually also, but I also believe that's more a good thing than a bad thing because I think that so many people grow up wanting to kind of belong and because they don't belong with the group that they're with, they choose to fit in, which means to that basically fitting in means you push aside part of yourself and your own beliefs, you know, like in order to actually be part of the group, whether that is, you know, you don't want to smoke, but you smoke because the cool kids smoke, whether that's you're in the office where there's a lot of sexist or racist jokes and you don't want to, you don't agree with those jokes, but you don't want to be ostracized so you go along with it um but i think that it's allowed for people to you know you say find your tribe or you know there's some total of the five people you spend the most time with it's given people that possibility to find those people from outside of their initial community but on the plus side i don't think we are capable of being truly global global thinkers i don't think we are there's um i always get the number the the, the expression wrong because i think dunbar's number is the one about computer power processor power double doubling every year no dumber is also the 150 oh it's okay yeah yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah, the 150 rule that we can only have 150 real connections, you know, like for the last three years, I've run this project called a life a day where I give out 365 one to ones, like over the course of the year, um, completely for free. And I will be honest and any like and say that I can't remember all of those. Sometimes someone will come back in year two and they'll be like, oh, yeah, do you remember what we talked about last year? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> you know, I've got like detailed notebooks everywhere and I try and figure it out. But it's like I can't possibly remember all of those things. So it actually dilutes the quality of the things that I want that I want to kind of relate to with those people. And this is the thing is that we are, I don't think we are built to be 
conscious of everything that's happening to everyone in every country no. you know ev- like everyone like and i think i don't think that's wrong either because you get treated as if you're a terrible person if you don't but really that person that's treating you as a terrible person there is issues in this world that they don't know about there are issues that you know about that they don't there are issues that you care about that they don't but they're just saying well if you don't agree with all the agree and believe in all the issues that i think if you're not on the same standpoint of me on um on on basically if you're not on the same standpoint as me on equal rights on um on racism on um on basically the economy on politics on you know all, on mental health on all of these things then then you're you're wrong and even if you disagree with a person it's like i often say negativity bias right um if i say to someone right if you have a bet with someone and say right it's going to be sunny tomorrow and they say it's going to rain tomorrow how much does it need to rain for in order for the person who said it's going to rain to win <laughs> five seconds, 10 minutes, right? How much does it need to be sunny for the whole day? It needs to be the positive thing. It needs to be a hundred percent of that in order for that person to win. And whereas the slightest bit of negativity, well, that's not that the rain's negative. It's a very positive thing for crops and all the rest of it. It's an essential part, but we see it as negative. Um, I I wonder though, if, if without the internet, oh, sorry, without social media. So we're talking principally, you know, Facebook, Twitter, if it wasn't for those two primary communication platforms, if we would, it would just be a little bit easier to get along. I mean, like, look, the reality is most people wouldn't dare say what they say to me online face to face in the room with me. They just wouldn't. They just wouldn't. Not because I'm menacing. It's just, you just don't do that to people. Do you know what I mean? And so I'm just trying to navigate that and go like, you know, I know what standard I want to hold which is to have debate, respect someone's opinion, but have an opinion of my own and not just try and not upset people. Because I think that's also, you know, you talk about this shrinking middle ground. I know who they are. They're the people that don't comment on anything because that's a, that's their a life of, it's just easier. They might get just riled up, but they don't comment because they don't want to be judged. They don't want to be put in a camp. And I think that's dangerous too. Like we should, these platforms are amazing. We should be able to communicate, share ideas, debate, and not hate each other as a result of disagreeing. But I just find more often than not, if you're not on each other's same page, there's judgment flying everywhere. Yeah, well, actually, to go back into what I kind of started talking about, the, the middle ground in, um, in mental health earlier. So here's the thing. I'm, I'm a, even though I've actually been quite quite forceful, I would say, for me in this last in this sort of conversation so far, is I'm a hugely empathetic and hugely sympathetic person, right? And I sit on the side of mental health. I sit about... I sit about half a mile to the right of it's okay not to be okay, but I don't sit a hundred percent in that camp. And I've had people within the mental health industry call me out for being too harsh. Now I like one of the things that will come across, hopefully when we talk about anxiety in the middle, I 100% believe if you need, if you struggle in where you are in this exact moment in time and you need a day in bed and all you do that day is get up and brush your teeth or if you get up and even just open the curtains or even just get out of that bed, I am 100% in your team. And I don't think that you need to be reaching for the stars that day. And I think it's relative to where you are in any given day. And I think that you might go, you know, end up being able to reach for the stars again in six months. And and then two years after that, you might be back in that bed. And again, we need to move the goalposts as and when and be compassionate about that. But the mere fact that I'm saying it's what we talked about before, that it's possible to change and we don't want to be into this mindset that it's 100% what happens to you 
in the I've been called out in the, within the mental health community of being I'm I'm not I'm not um I'm not compassionate enough I'm too forceful I'm too aggressive and it's like you've not met me you don't know me it's like because you on, honestly I don't know personally I don't know people that are more compassionate than I am I've not they're not met in real life I've met them on I've met people online that appear to be a lot more compassionate than I am but I've never met anyone in, in real life that is quite as quite because you know is quite that side of it as I am, but I still get called out, and, and that's the thing is you have to be a hundred percent in the camp or you're not. It's an all or nothing mentality, and it's it's harmful. Mm. Yeah, you see you see this with with people that um, want to make a brand for themselves, and they you know they you often hear like you have to niche down if you want to get noticed. So there's many yeah. people that I know that I, I really like as individuals, but they brand themselves as you know the keto guy. You know, the, the actual name is keto something or another. And you're like, you're you're a great dad. You're you've got great ethics. You you really care about people. You're spiritual. You know, you know, you 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 crush it in life in so many ways, but you've labeled yourself as keto because you want to be easily discovered and you want people to kind of form a tribe with you. So I, I think we kind of do it to ourselves. There's so many layers to this. Um we should probably <laughs> we should probably move on. But yeah, I, I find it fascinating. I'm I'm struggling to navigate social media for myself such that I can be of value to others without pissing 50% of the people off. And unfortunately, I haven't found that balance yet. Yeah, my rule on that now is don't get involved in arguments unless I'm invited into them personally, which I never am. I never am. There's, I've never been invited into an argument personally. No one has ever said, Dave, what do you think on this and got me into an argument? It's always me seeing something that I... that doesn't quite invite align with me into, yeah. yeah and it's it's never a good idea because you invite yourself into an arena where you, you're on you know where the other person's got the home team advantage um i did it once with um i mean it's ironic really i've said that um, the whole thing if all you did today is brush your teeth then um i'm happy you know i'm, I'm proud of you now i saw that exact post but on um on a, a site a page called iway which is jamila jamil's page and um but it was it was on eating disorder awareness week and for me i don't have a problem with that post but i have a problem with that post with hashtag eating disorder written on it because if you're saying if all you've done today is brushed your teeth to someone who's got anorexia it's like i'm sorry but you've just like you're yeah you're exactly and all i said i said just do not think that this post like in this in the in this situation is a little bit insensitive but maybe towards someone who's with with anorexia Um, and especially as someone i'm recovered from an eating disorder myself and obviously none of the people seeing that know that and all that I got jumped on big time because obviously Jamila Jamil's big deal. Um, and she and basically I got jumped on big time by a bunch of people saying, why is everyone going to find something negative? What's wrong with you? What what happened to you to make you so, you know, so like this and all the rest of it. Wow. And it's like, I want, and, and I just thought, you know what? I'm out. <laughs> Um, I'm not I'm not involved in this um, and the and the other one that I got in a really big argument with is something called the mental health media charter um, and the mental health media charter talk about how we should talk about mental health responsibly in the media and they um, they made this post about the phrase okay boomer and about how it's this is a great response to anyone that doesn't listen to you and doesn't and as a millennial if you're a millennial if this person tries to push you like you know doesn't listen to your opinions or has a contrary opinion to yours it's a really good thing to say to them if they don't understand you and your mental health and if they've called you a snowflake or anything like that and i was just like well do you not think saying okay boomer back to someone because you're upset about them calling you a snowflake is a bit hypocritical 
And they were like, uh, no, what are you on about? It's totally okay. It's not one's a description, whereas the other one's offensive. And I'm like, no, I think the, with the intent behind them, they're both offensive. Um, yeah, you're, yeah. Just try, you're, trying, you're just trying to label someone and create, create like, I know you. I know you by your one statement. And I guess that's what we're seeing mostly. Yeah. And essentially what I learned from both of these interactions is don't get involved in arguments online because and if it'd be very different if me and the person that run the mental health media chat, I honestly reckon me and Errol get on really well if we ever meet each other. Um, but it's like, I think because I, I agree with so much, that's why I followed the page in the first place. But I thought I disagreed with that. And people have disagreed with me on my, on my posts. And if I I, if I see their point, I'm like, yeah, actually, I'll go with that. And I think I see the opportunity to learn there. But if I don't see their point, I'll stand firm in what I'm saying. And again, it's not like we're all going to have the same opinion on everything, is it? No, man, no. Let's talk a little bit about anxiety as we close this conversation. So we've kind of, we've weaved it in throughout, but whether it's, um, oh, I think they're related. This this idea that the, anxi- the anxieties of both virus and coming coming unstuck due to infection is obviously very prevalent right now globally. Um, But tied to that, I think, is an increasing level of social anxiety. Now, some people, I think, are going to be more prone to that than others. Um, My kids have been out of school for three months. I was concerned that my girls are going to struggle going back and reintegrate into their school. My eldest done done so yesterday, and it, it was just you know, duck to a water. She was absolutely fine. Whereas I know yeah. a younger one who does absolutely suffer with anxiety related issues, especially around herself and being judged and communicating in public. I know this is holding her back a bit and this is going to create some anxieties as the time draws closer. Luckily, she doesn't have to think about that until September now. But I know that's going to be something we're going to have to work through for her. And I know as adults, some people are going to be struggling with this idea of returning back to the office space or connecting with friends they haven't spoken to for months or, you know, just generally trying to rebuild their connection with people. So let's talk about anxiety in general. how, How do you frame it and how does how can it manifest and worsen and exacerbate? Okay. One thing that I'm just, this, this is, isn't an answer to that question at all, but it's just something cool I saw the other day that a, a local gym's doing around here. It's for when they reopen, they've got three different wristbands. They've got a red, an amber, and a green. And a green means I'm, I'm you know, I'm not social distancing. I'm happy. I want, I'm ready for high fives and all the rest of it. Um, the, what the middle one is, you know, I'm here. I don't mind sitting and have a conversation, but I don't want to be within two meters of you. And the red one means like, please don't even kind of approach me right now so That's I can be in the gym. And I'm like, you know what? We need that. Yeah. I think that I because the thing the ultimately the problem is with this is no one's wrong. The person who wants to kind of like do high fives and all the rest of it when we when it's been proven that it what once the point it's been proven that it's actually safe to do so, that person's not wrong. The person who wants to sit and have a conversation is not wrong, and the person who wants to be left alone is not wrong. None of these people are wrong. We just don't know which one's which, and like, so we don't. So we I I'm a hugger. I'm a massive hugger. I used to, I love hugging people. I, I people often come up to hug for hugs at um, conferences and stuff with me, and I, I love it. Um, and in fact, that's one of the things from Ben's conferences. Like I've got a reputation in being there, in there as being given the best hugs in the world. And in fact, yeah. one person turned around and said, I feel sorry for you. I'm like, why? Because you'll never know what it's like to get a hug from you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, like, that's like one of the best compliments I've ever had. But I now I know that going back to like even once people have kind of 
got past this period, I know that when I can do physical events again, I can't just go up and assume that. And probably I shouldn't have done before, to be perfectly honest. I can't just assume. I actually often say to someone, are you a hugger? Are you doing like, and I've said that to my, um, to my web designer, who's the one who I actually converted to veganism somehow. Um, the other week I saw him and I'm like, are you doing, you know, are you doing handshakes yet or anything? He was like, no. And I was like, okay, cool. I respect that. So, um, so that's the whole thing is I think we need to know where the other person's so at true. now. So true. Now, and, and it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult reaching out. We've been trying to reach out to our friends and like without being overt and direct, like, you know, can we come see you? Are you okay for us to see you? You have to kind of weave it into conversation and get a sense, get a sense check as to whether they're open to connection right now or they're waiting for yet some more information to allow that to happen really difficult yeah. really dif oh, difficult I just to navigate with, that i go with the um i just go with the overt question i'm just like are you guys up for having company yet and um like if you are do you want it to be outside it's like you know i think i think i've just gone down the route of let's just normalize that direct. conversation That's yeah. It. yeah exactly and um it's yeah it is, there's different friends that are at different places really and that's and that's fine and that's the whole thing is like you know is especially as well saying to people okay I, like if someone is i'm not really up for that yet you say well what are you up for and let's let's start with that and this is actually that that leads us into how you actually kind of deal with helping someone expand their comfort zone because ultimately all most anxieties are a reaction to a comfort zone. well they're a reaction that causes a person's comfort zone to shrink so a person a person like let's for example the two that are in play mostly with um with covid are health anxiety and social anxiety usually health anxiety is a person gets sick or sees somebody else get sick when they're younger um, and then they assume that that's always going to be the case i had a bit of a health anxiety around um the, about around fault tripping over and falling over when i was a kid because when i was six i fell over in the playground and unbeknownst to me my nan had an appointment for me for an eye test that day and um and i had um i had to go and get glasses for the first time that day and i genuinely i remember at six feeling like that the reason i got glasses was because i fell over and um those type of things it's very easy to imprint on a person so if if kids are growing up now or even adults growing up like, like um, adults growing up we are we all still are but um even if they see in the fact that okay such and such went out and they shook hands with someone and they got sick that's enough for a person to say i should never shake hands with anybody ever again and um it's you know it's it, I, I do anticipate there will be a rise in health anxiety. Um, I have clients with health anxiety. They've actually handled this whole situation like business as usual to the most part. There's been a couple of that have struggled, but the majority of them have been like, yeah, I've been used to this for ages. I've not wanted to be around people and their germs for a long period of time. I've always been over, like, so it's like, I've been, they're always like, if I so want justified it. Yeah. One of them actually said, I've trained for this day my entire life. <laughs> um, in fact, my mum said the same with social anxiety. Um, because my mum lives, my mum lives on her own, but she's also got, um, she's got type two diabetes and, um, ah, what's that thing with your lungs? Oh, I can't remember. She only COPD. She only got diagnosed with it just before COVID as well. So she was like, no, don't want to be any, absolutely anybody, but she's been living on her own for ages. And at first she was like fine with it. She's, she's bored out of her skull now, but at first she was absolutely fine with it because it was just business as usual for her. You know, she's like, you know, um, as long as she could get food deliveries, that and everything was fine. So that, I mean, social anxiety is more like you, you feel like you freaked out by the party. So you don't go to the party. And then the next thing you know is you feel better because you didn't go to the party because you got this relief. So then next time around you go, oh, I'm going to cancel the party like a week in advance or I'm just, you know, and then eventually what happens is you, the more social events you start avoiding, the more people like, you know, stop inviting you to them. 
And then maybe you'll look at the group texts and there'll be too many group texts. So you just think, oh, I'll leave that group for a little bit or I'll just I'll just ignore that for a little bit. And then you don't reply to your one, your single texts and all the rest of it. And, and eventually you end up full on isolated and it can be can be very very quick you know there's, there's there's loads of ways in which this can happen you know people driving cars like realize they don't want to like it probably it's probably happened to me i found that driving an automatic when i went on an um to a, on an american road trip and i'm like i'm so I bought myself an automatic a year later when i was replaced when i was re- replacing my car and i don't know how i would feel about driving a geared car now but and um, you because you, your ability and you and it, we think we have to think about it as an ability our ability to interact in those departments now same is true for like if you're if you're your daughter was like already on the edge and a little bit found it hard to socially interact she'd have probably loved lockdown at the beginning because she's not going to deal with those hard social interactions for the for, you know for she's a little still while loving it. She's still still, loving yep, still, yeah. exactly well there you go so now it's like where i get concerned is the fact that we've got a proof of concept that we can all work from home like not all of us but a lot of people have got a proof of concept that they can do their job from home so if that person was at the edge of their comfort zone in the in the office beforehand now they might just want to turn around and say well can i work from home forever and the employers might just turn around and go you know what we can save on a bit of electricity we can give that desk to someone else we can maybe downsize the office or whatever yeah great idea now, the thing is, that's that's going to be fantastic short term for a person. But it's enough one of these boomerangs that I mentioned right at the offset of our conversation is it gives you that relief in the short term. But then what happens when the annual conference comes up or what happens when you've got to go to a sales meeting or what happens when, you know, you've got to go into the office for a specific reason is before being there, even though it was uncomfortable, was keeping that skill fresh. And now because you've not been there because you and you know it's the the skill the skill isn't particularly fresh and the anxiety will most likely be higher same with going out same with being around your friends same with touching people you know i i put a poll on my instagram a little while back about how do you feel when you see people touching each other on tv and i i sit there and go i want to hug people whereas a lot of people are like what the hell are you doing you're going to give them covid it's like this film was made in the 60s <laughs> you know it's like um <laughs> we see people and it's already in this is again our brains work differently right so some people's brains will have just gone oh yeah i miss when we could do that i'm a bit gutted whereas other people will see that same scene and be like oh gems and that gives you i was you waiting a- for the excuse to not have to do all this touching and now it's here <laughs> Do you know what yeah I mean? I mean again we talked about social media and tribalism and i read so many things on twitter that i just had to stop reading it because it was like people there was a whole long thread of things that people wish that never come back it's like i don't people were like i can't I'm, i hope handshaking never comes back I hope hugs never come back. Oh. That awkward kind of kind of handshake where you go into half a hug, that should go away. Um, you know, I think we don't even need to kissing. be within two. Yeah, exactly. Kissing was a big one. Um, and it's like people are like, yeah, now that we've proven that we can get by without those things. And I'm like, I don't know. I And again, it's this comes back to the idea of who's right and who's wrong. Like the handshake, whoever invented that, it's, it, it caught on with a lot of people. But I doubt, I doubt it was a unanimous vote by absolutely everyone, even a, even a thousand years ago when it was first you know, introduced. I bet there were people that have always hated it. But now, because it's been because the, the handshake is now associated with coming within proximity with someone and coming within proximity of someone is associated with passing on a disease yeah there'll be a lot of a, a lot of a stauncher opposition to it the pro- the problem i have with that dave and this is not again to take take sides it's more around saying if you just if you just backpedal through our evolutionary history and you look at how we how we came to be 
and how our body has basically manifested everything it is today in response to um, both being productive for that environment as well as motivating us to act in certain ways, you know, aka hormones, neuropeptides, etc. I just had a lady on just recently that we're in a couple of weeks talking about really the the biology of humans and how uh, these these hormones drive behaviors that go way back when and loneliness actually serves a purpose to reunite yourself with the tribe because alone in the savannah, you're more at risk. And and she just kept walking through all of these scenarios of like, wow, all of these feelings make perfect sense, perfect sense way back when. And, you know, the flood of oxytocin when there's connection and, and, you know, brotherhood and, you know, sense of parenting or what have you, it's strong and it's real. It's not, this ain't bullshit. This stuff, this, this stuff makes us whole. And this idea that we can do away with 50% or more of our social interaction because we have technology to enable that, that saddens me, man, if I'm honest. Um, uh, yeah, myself, me too. But again, it's, it's like who's to say what's right and wrong because that could, who, for all we know, that could be the next stage of our evolution and we might end up just being symbiotic one day as we're all connected via some sort of weird in-brain Wi-Fi. I mean, we've got no, like it's, we've got no way of knowing if this is just a, some sort of adolescence in our own evolutionary and that, and, yeah. and that we could be going somewhere else. And I imagine every person that went through a transition, there's a lot of transitions going on right now. You know, like the world's trying to finally transition out of racism. The, tra- the world's trying to finally transition into equality between the genders and, you know, equal opportunities for everyone. It's trying to transition into those things. And a transition period is always uncomfortable. I, mean, I imagine when we moved from cave drawings to writing, there were people that, you know, op- opposed that transition. And ha- I cannot honestly say, like, you know, I've got my emotional and my intellectual reasons for saying why I'm on the side of history that I'm on, whether or not I'm on the right side of history. I don't know. Very true. And I actually wish that more people would take that approach rather than because t- I think that's the whole thing is comes down to the word should people say that's why I said I hate the word should before people say I think this therefore you should too you know people that are in the position that I'm in in terms of losing weight would often say I lost weight so you should too and when you say should to a person it causes shame it causes the person to feel like they're not good enough in your eyes they're not they're not living up to what your expectations are of them you should do this and really we don't know we're basing it on our own sort of interpretation of things but I, I'm, I'm in the same camp as you in this one I'm, I'm, I'm definitely on, on board with the idea that I think I I don't want us to I don't want us to become that sort of symbiotic thing that doesn't have human interaction. I don't I don't like that idea. You know, I, I love the film Demolition Man. It's probably the worst film that I love. <laughs> but like the way they've got the way they've got sex in Demolition Man, where they put those two kind of mm-hmm. headbands on and they just experience sex on a neurological level rather than actually physically do it. And like and in fact, actually, she's like he's like. Um, Stallone's like, what about we do it the old-fashioned way? And she's like, <laughs> and Sandra Bullock's all like, what? intercourse with fluid exchange and she's disgusted by the idea um in fact i might re-watch that film given that um it's relevant <laughs> yeah it's, to- it's totally it's never been more relevant than ever in fact actually it's so relevant because they keep they get fined automatically when they swear yeah, it's yeah. like so if you if you've said something that the, that the computer disagrees with you're going to be cancelled it's um it's very very relevant yeah very true man so if someone has noticed in themselves that they've built up some anxiety whether it be health anxiety or social anxiety through this time or before and are thinking okay this is probably not productive for me and i need to get through it but i'm not quite sure how um are there any just 
glimmers of hope or, or, or processes that you would have them start thinking about? Yeah, 100%. Um, mental health and physical health work work in the same way in this department is the fact that you don't just go hard at it and just and it sorts itself out. With physical health, you wouldn't just go and put a bar on your back and squat forever and never stop. And therefore, you, you'd be the strongest person in the world. It doesn't work like that. We need periods of work and we need periods of recovery. Um, often what happens is the balance goes out of, out of whack. So some people will go, right, I'm going to be on a full-on self-development journey and I'm going to go hardcore into my development. I'm going to just go work, work, work at my anxiety, which might mean exposing yourself to some of the things that you're anxious about. Now, that'll work for some people. It really will. Some people will just go full on into exposure therapy and like it'll work straight away. For others, it's more about like, I'm going to do one set, which might mean I'm going to reply to that single text and then I'm going to take a breather. And I'm going to congratulate myself for it. I'm going to be like, you know what? I'm proud of myself for that because I could have, like I said about the walk before, you know, I didn't get the results of that straight away, but I, I did automatically give myself a little bit of credit for the fact that I'd done it. Um, so yeah, if you want to, if you want to sort of, if you, you know, go and sort of say to your friends, tell your friends, be honest and upfront with them about where you sat with the anxiety. It's, it's important and say to them, look, I really want to actually start interacting again, but I'm not comfortable with this. Would it be okay if we just you know, had something where we're a little bit further than two meters apart, or even if that needs, you've not done a Skype call or anything like that, you've not done any video, even though that's your next step, figure out what your next baby step is. Um, it won't feel like a baby step. It'll feel huge. Um, so, but it is like, you, but it, you'll probably look at it logically and say, oh yeah, all I'm doing is having a call. No, it's something, it's huge. It's amazing. Figure out what that baby step is. Give yourself credit for the fact that you've taken it and then take some time to kind of chill, reflect on it, and then keep on doing that. A comfort zone will shrink over time, either through trauma or through neglect. Um, in order for it to grow, we actually just need to push ourselves. But we need to be, we need to push ourselves in a way where we're conscious about what we're uh, conscious about the fact that we're doing it. And we're okay with the fact that it can feel difficult because the first thing your brain will want to do is go, oh, well, I can say it'll discredit what you've just done. No, what you've just done is huge. So yeah, if you are anxious or if you're depressed and you get out of bed today, then that's huge. If you're anxious and you reach out to a friend today, that's huge. If you're anxious and you go to a shop even and like, you know, that's not got any cue and you still go inside that shop, that is massive. And, you know, be, be proud of yourself for doing those things. Oh, I think that's, that's great closing advice. Would you would you recommend those uh, the, the people that are feeling some anxiety? I think we all do. I think I feel some anxiety across various parts of my life at times. Do you think it's productive to talk about it, to try and be open as, as best you can with, whether it be online or whether it be, and I don't think online is a place, but whether it be online or whether it be with friends or just your loved one or, yeah, generally, do you think talking about these anxieties is productive? Yes, absolutely. And um, one thing that I will say on that is that I have social anxiety myself, which is why I talk about it so much. And um, if I'm feeling vulnerable and in that position, one of the best things I do is I tell my friends and I'll say to them, look, you know, I might not be my best my best self today. Um, I'm feeling a little bit socially anxious and it was quite hard for me to be there. And what they'll do is turn around and go, that's fine. That's cool. And the pressure suddenly disappears. And most of the time I end up flourishing and being like the life of the party in the end of that. But if I sit there and try and hide it and think, oh, crap, I hope no one, you know, notices that I'm not feeling myself today, then all I'm doing is I put more and more pressure on myself. And um, it usually it all usually exacerbates my anxiety. So 
yeah there is that um there's a i've also put quite a few videos up in terms of anxiety that people could check out as well that um there's a great trick with a juggling ball and um, which can be found i think through my facebook would be the easiest way to find it and um, if you look up dave cottrell anxiety or mindset by dave anxiety on facebook unfortunately you can't search on instagram um but there's some there's i've put a video on my youtube and on, on social anxiety recently as well um, and the life a day thing i mentioned earlier to people which is you know i do 300 365 free ones ones a year if anyone's enjoyed listening to this and wants to get in specifically into into what they're struggling with they can have a call with me for free Um, and there's three rules on that number one is i won't try and sell you anything so it's not i'm not getting you into a marketing funnel i've got i do this for 365 people a year i really can't be bothered looking after that many people the second one is um that i um uh, the second one is that I don't use it to just tra- generate um, testimonials. You want to tell me what, how you got on with it and all the rest of it and give me permission to share it? Great, but I won't ask you. Uh, I'm not going to like, you know, that's not going to be a condition. And the third thing is I don't hold back all the good stuff from my paying clients. So in that hour, people often say, what can you get done in an hour? Um, the answer is a lot, a lot more than you can get done without using that hour. So, um, so yeah, if people want to do that, um, then just, you know, give me a shout on social media. Fantastic. That sounds like a, a lovely service. And it was also just encouraging to hear that um, that you, when you ex- expose your concerns, weaknesses, anxieties, that the the feet or the response sounds uh, hopefully unanimously, if not most often, sounds quite caring, as opposed to being judgmental and shaming you and giving you shit for it. In actual fact, you know the 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 anxiety of telling someone about your anxiety doesn't seem yeah. to be. Um, uh, see, it seems to be misplaced and that people yeah. care when they hear that you're struggling. Well, here's the thing. If they didn't, well, uh, there's, there's, there's your quick fire way to figure out if they're your friends, right? Yeah. So it's like, I always say that if you're going to, if you're going to be like in a job interview or anything, it's like, or, you know, be on, be open and honest about your anxiety up front, because if you want to find out that someone's not down, if someone, you want to find out that someone's not interested in you because you've got anxiety, you want to find that on day one rather than day 1000. So it's like, otherwise you're just going to be living with that fear forever. So you may as well, if it's like people are afraid that if I open up to people, they'll reject me. Cool. Open up to them, let them reject you and then real, and then go and find someone that doesn't. Oh, I love that, man. Love that. You, um, you, you said that, uh, you spoke about your Facebook page and Instagram. So let's just be clear on what those handles are and any website of choice that you want people to make sure they can visit. Okay. Um, mindset by Dave everywhere. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all mindset by Dave. The website is mindsetbydave.com. Um, and the one that I really love, like if anyone's into gaming and stuff, the one I'm really trying to push at the minute, cause that's where we're going to stream that 26 hour event through is Twitch. Um, and that's twitch.tv slash mindset by Dave. And I'm also Mindset by Dave on YouTube. So all of those places, pick whichever one you want. Follow me on any of them, all of them. Um, I am very communicative. So if you do drop me a message and stuff, I do tend to get back to them quite quickly. And yeah, I just love kind of interacting and just enjoying kind of like sharing talk about mental health. This has been fantastic, man. No, I can't believe we've spoken for so long, but it has been easy flowing. I could do another two hours if I did enough. If I did enough uh, same, same. So thank you so much. Hopefully we can have another chat or several over, over the coming years. I wish you all the best. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep being a force for good. And please, let's keep in touch, man. Yeah, definitely. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, 
do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>